Ukraine is fighting for its very existence against an enemy that repeatedly claims it is not a real country, that it has no identity or culture as distinct from Russian culture, and that Ukraine is not even an independent language. Equally on the far left and the far right and the West, there are some who see Ukraine as a tool of Western foreign policy. But Ukrainians have agency and the right to determine their future, the evolution of their political system and which alliances they choose to entertain. Today, we're exploring the cultural aspects of this David and Goliath struggle as a young democracy struggles against an old autocracy. Welcome to Silicon Curtain Podcast. If you enjoy the material we create, then please like and subscribe so that other people can help discover our wonderful guests. Tetiana Denford is a Ukrainian-American fiction author, translator for Frontline PBS, freelance writer, as well as a YouTube channel host with a 20-plus year history of working in the writing and editing world. Her first novel, self-published in 2020 as Motherland, has been republished in July 2022 with the team at Hatchet uh, Bukutra as The Child of Ukraine. It reached number one on the Amazon new release list. Tetiana used to write freelance for Elle and Vogue and has been featured in the New York Times, The Telegraph, The Paris View, Flock Magazine and Medium. Tetiana, welcome to the channel. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with culture. Um, and we're going to talk a lot about different aspects of culture. We're also going to touch on some of the myths that Russia is using to try and suppress Ukraine physically and culturally. But let's start with something perhaps unexpected, and that is fashion. Um, how is fashion helping to keep up Ukrainian morale and fight uh, Russian aggression? Well, I think, you know, um, fashion has always been a way uh, that one of the ways that Ukrainians have kind of uh, expressed themselves because of how the traditional Ukrainian dress is like the shiv and you sort of the shivanki they're called. So basically the embroidered fashion that you see that sometimes comes out on the high street um, with lots of, you know, mass produced retailers providing these little kind of cute embroidered shirts when actually that has been for generations that's been a very kind of Ukrainian thing and we tell our stories from different regions um, on our blouses and our dresses the men have uh, their own sorochka um, with different patterns some regions have more floral and you know animal depictions some regions have <clears throat> more shapes um and so i think what's interesting is that the ukrainians and ukrainian designers have always tried to get the world to pay attention to those sorts of designs and um kind of traditional ways of dressing um and they've you know in the past i think it was gucci and some other uh fashion houses that tried to Kind of put it on the runway in a very filtered way, but it never really took off. And I think, um, you know, it was slightly, I remember that thinking, oh, you know, growing up and a lot of Ukrainians would say, okay, well, you know, in Ukraine, there are lots of places selling these things and it's really popular, but, you know, no one really paid attention. And then suddenly, unfortunately, we have this 
war happen in February. And obviously it's been bubbling for the last eight years, but suddenly this has all kind of come to a head. And now I think it was a watershed moment for Ukrainians to say, okay, finally, everybody has their heads turned and looking at Ukraine in the center of the lens. Now we're going to flood the channels with everything we can. And one of the first things that came about was fashion. Uh, there are so many amazing Ukrainian fashion designers um, that are creating just these beautiful modern representations of traditional embroidered linen shirts and dresses. But also there are Ukrainian women and men who run companies who have modern clothes. It's not just about embroidered shirts and dresses that people have kind of come to realize. But, um, and I think, you know, what's really interesting is that everybody's kind of pushing to the front uh, Ukrainians are just saying, you know, have a look at this, learn from this, understand where, you know, what this is and where we're coming from. Um, and one of the, and the, 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 one of the great things about social media, um, is that you, you have things at the, at the, at your fingertips in about two seconds. And it's so easily shared now these, you know, the people who have platforms and people who even don't, if they kind of share things that are, you know, Ukrainian businesses that are fashion houses or fashion houses that are collaborating with Ukrainians and doing, you know, certain textiles or certain, you know, um, things that you can buy, it's really quite, it's really quite, you know, special now. And I think it's such an amazing moment. And one of the things that, um, you know, I, I bought for myself uh, when I signed a, a book deal this year is a, is a dress from Ukraine from a company called Ethnodim. And that's ethnic wear. I guess you can, uh, I think translated as Ethnodim is like the ethnic house. So, and they produce again, modern representations of really beautiful shirts and dresses. So that's one of the ways that fashion is kind of trying to make a statement is saying, we're not some backdoor behind the scenes operation here. Ukraine has been a very modern democratic, um, very engaged country full of these amazing creative people you know, but nobody's really paid attention. And I think fashion is one of the first and one of the biggest ways that people can pay attention is just because you can buy yourself a piece that you can wear, you know, it doesn't have to be expensive, but if it's made, if something is made, even a small shirt, if something is made by Ukrainian hands, people feel like they own a piece of who Ukraine is. And I think that's really powerful. And that's really interesting. I mean, this is going to be perhaps quite a convoluted question here, but it comes out of my own sort of experiences. You know, I was into folk music. And when I went to Russia back in the 90s, I was really keen to see whether there was any sort of innovation on folk traditions. So I mm. you know, say to people, I'm interested in this. I want to see dances. I want to see costumes. I want to see maybe some traditional music. Mm. And when I was studying in Scotland, just like you said in Ukraine, there was a, a movement to reinterpret, whether it be sort of songs, dances, whatever, to modernize them, reinterpret them and sort of riff on cultural traditions yeah. without feeling threatened. And what sort of stunned me in Russia was the, I would call it the ossification of culture, it was almost like the slavish reproduction of whether it be sort of costume or dance or music without any kind of innovation. 
and that that just created um you know this isn't any kind of strategic analysis but it created a sense of of uh l- that lack of innovation just disturbed me um oh you mean like yeah exactly like the state everything is yeah, kind the of stayed, organized it- by the state you know right. you're not allowed to sort of riff on it you're not allowed to deviate from a yeah. kind of inher- inherited uh sort of tone or style yeah. or whatever uh, yeah. does that I- reflect the health of society in some ways or even democratic <laughs> values i I think it's it's wonderful. I think the only way you can appreciate and innovate the future is by celebrating the past, personally. And I think, but the, but both go hand in hand. And uh, you know, I hate to use any comparisons, but Russia loves sitting in the past. They love everything from the past. They love the relics of the past. It's like they want to stay there. Whereas you Ukrainians have never been like that. They take the traditions that they were born with and raised with and they inhabit and they just let them evolve naturally, you know, over time. I would still happily wear my Vishivanka with jeans. I would happily, you know, you, uh, we've never been precious about how our heritage or how our fashion and music and stuff was interpreted by others because we ourselves interpret it in lots of different ways. Because honestly, like a culture is, any culture is going to be very multi-layered, you know? And, uh, you know, I'm not going to speak for any other culture, but but I would say that Ukrainians are very happy to celebrate both. You know, there's, there's, you know, we can, I'm sure, talk about it going forward. But music, for example, has moved through generations in loads of different ways. And now traditional Ukrainian songs are being, you know, reinterpreted by Ukrainian rap artists. And they're kind of chopping and changing it. And I think that's beautiful. I think that that's there's, you know, the two are not mutually exclusive, the traditional and the modern. I think you can, they are, they can coexist and marry each other and live in each other's spaces very happily. So there isn't a sense, you know, I'm sure there are purists and traditionists in every country, but broadly speaking, people don't feel threatened by that innovation. No, as long as it complete does not completely um, unravel the story and and where the 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 tradition comes from because the only way you can modernize it is is if something like is if it exists in the first place and you have to respect the origin story of where it comes from so no i don't i don't think we're precious i mean the the thing about fashion that we are precious about and i will say that probably most ukrainians would agree with me is you know we love for example when people want to buy and wear a Vishvanka. And I've I've been asked this before. People say, well, can I wear it if I'm not Ukrainian? Uh, And I say, absolutely, yes, you can, but you cannot buy it off of the high street or from Zara or from, you know, you have to really ideally research where to buy it from somebody who makes it 
a Ukrainian who makes it. And ideally, you should know that the pattern that you're wearing comes from a specific region. You should know the story behind what you're wearing because you are wearing somebody else's heritage. You know, you should never wear Ukrainian traditional fashion or something that has some tradition in it as a costume. You should wear it as a very proudly as a, as an item of clothing, you know, more modern stuff that Ukrainians make. Well, that's different. You are supporting a Ukrainian brand, which is great, but I'm talking more like the things that we're picky about is not allowing yourself to fall into the, Oh, this is cool. This is now cool to wear embroidery. I'm just going to get it from M and S, mm. you know, <laughs> And if you don't know the story behind it, that 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 is a a sort of well, not even cultural appropriation, but that is just um, using it as a throwaway uh, yeah. sort of symbol. Yeah, and that's and that's disrespectful. You know, like you can't buy a T-shirt with embroidery on it and say, "Well, this is Ukrainian." This is this. It's not. <laughs> that's not how it works. Another, uh, you know, again, uh, extremely broad generalization here. I mean, I came to realize that some of the sort of TV and the pop sings and so on that I really sort of detested while I was in Russia. Um, it's very difficult not to sort of, uh, you know, make sort of, um, I would say cultural assumptions there, but I came to realize that actually a lot of that culture comes about, a lot of that repetitive culture comes about actually because of nepotism and because of the control of media. So do you think there's a connection between you know, innovation, whether it be in design, music, and literature, which, you know, it's hard work to innovate, it's hard work to promote an innovation, and it goes counter to a nepotistic system. And yet, one of the problems, one of the roots, actually, of this invasion is, I believe, you know, a nepotistic system trying to reproduce itself, trying to preserve itself. Mm -hmm. um, but that also affects the cultural sphere as well, doesn't it? Of course. I mean, that you know russia for generations and generations and to other countries has tried to reproduce itself and make the soviet union in happen you know constantly when they were when you know they're just they uh, the way i can see it is this you know Ukraine has always wanted to live independently and to have its own language, its own culture, and, you know, very successfully have produced art and, and literature and music and all these amazing churches and, and monuments to things. And I think it's very typical of a colonizing country to want to erase that because if they can't do it, then nobody else can have it. So, and they, they, you know, they try and recreate that austere, you know, iron walled life somewhere else, because that's what they see that, you know, they believe that communism is the way forward. And they believe that, you know, that's the way to be live a very well organized life and the propaganda is that you know the people rule because communism is you know having the people all equal and i think what other countries reflect to them is 
all of us are turning around saying, well, actually, what you don't understand is that there's actually this little small group of people that have more than all the rest of you. But, you know, they're trying to convince you otherwise, and they're trying to convince all these other countries that they're trying to colonize otherwise, you know, and of course, every generation of Russian is going to believe the same, which, you know, I have no sympathy, but I for them but i do understand where the mentality is the the replication of what they themselves are used to and have been born into they are told that this is the way these are the rules to follow you know so of course that they know no different so they're going to think that ukrainians are a bunch of Nazis and who, you know, who are defiling themselves with belief in such degrading Western culture, you know, it's, so it's kind of like this virus that spreads if you let it, it is, it's, you're right, it's nepotism, but yeah. And it leads to us really to the, the, an exploration of the Ukrainian character, both as it is, and how it's, you know, leading to the resilience and resistance in the war, but also the Ukrainian character as it's portrayed in Russian propaganda. And of course, we've got the sort of lumpen Nazi type uh, propaganda at the moment, but actually yeah. portraying Ukrainians as poor, as, you know, basically illiterate farmers, prostitutes, uh, mafia, that yep. goes back actually to the early 2000s. Well, you can go back to Soviet um, myths yeah. as well. But in terms of soap operas on Russian TV, oh, yeah. a certain stereotype, even from the early 2000s, uh, was starting to take shape, wasn't it? Yeah. And, I, you know, I, I actually said that the other day on, on Twitter, and I did get some pushback from some people saying, well, you know, that's not true. I've never I've never seen that. And I'm thinking, well, OK, first of all, uh, either you are or aren't Ukrainian. And even if you are, if you grew up in Ukraine, um, and left at around teenage years and went to Canada, for example, you may not have seen that rhetoric because there's a huge uh, center of, of the Ukrainian community in Canada. And maybe that's not perpetuated. But I know, you know, after living in New York, um, you know, and hearing even in New York, which has actually the biggest Ukrainian population in the entire United States, you still get that from Americans. You still, they, they you know, uh, American media, American television shows, sit, you know, sitcoms, movies, they all perpetuate this stereotype that Ukrainians are all these roly-poly, stupid, you know, potato peeling babas and, and you know, and it's, you know, it's unfair and it's frustrating, but also it's fascinating that that goes back to years and years of this propaganda machine. It's like I, I said to you earlier, David, it's so clever how Russian propaganda did this for so long. And I'm, uh, it's so unfortunate that we have to have a war to kind of peel the layers off but I just feel like people are saying, oh, I had no idea. You know, nobody even knew where Ukraine was. And yet it was one of the most important countries when it came to agriculture in Europe. And yet Russia just completely eclipsed 
Ukraine and Poland for so long. So it's just wild. That's, uh, I mean, you've really prefigured there one of my questions, which was going to be, you know, from being on the edge of Europe, being on the edge of an empire, um, and even the word, you know, Ukraine, Nakrayu, uh, you know, means sort of on, on, on the, the edge, edge on yeah. the edge of the world. Um, Ukraine has gone from being, I think, purposefully suppressed and its role in European history, which was actually central. If you go back, you know, a few centuries or even to the First World War, absolutely pivotal uh, territory uh, in the struggle of the First Second World War and in various sort of 19th century emergence of nationalism. And before that, um, and now we're seeing this incredible resurgence. Um, what do you think Ukraine's uh, future is going to be? Is it going to really be a key player within not just the European political system, but also the cultural sphere as well? I think, you know, when it comes to politics, I think... I think the game has shifted a bit. You know, I think we have a leader who is not a typical dusty politician with a suit on. He is leading a country through war and yet engaging the media and the particular in particular social media so well and in such a human way, I think it really changes how people will potentially see who they elect in the future and who they want to support. I think because the majority of the world sees him as a, a like, almost like a regular guy. I mean, he's very smart. He's very well-spoken, but also he is not a career politician. He's somebody who a lot of people didn't actually vote for in Ukraine. They're going, you know what, let's take a punt. Like, let's see, let's see what happens. And, you know, I think by holding people, he has held people accountable. He talks to leaders like human beings. He is honest in his interviews, um, you know, and it's a very difficult and complicated position, I'm sure. And I'm sure there's going to be criticism of, how and there already has been about how he's dealt with certain things and or in the past and currently, but I think that in particular for politics, I think will change the way um, world leaders conduct business potentially and how they address not only their people but on a global stage how they kind of. Um, address certain issues. Um, so when it comes to that, I think Ukraine has really kind of shown people how to be human and how to be um, just really bold and fearless, but not in an arrogant way, in still a really generous way. And with like, you know, showing how to give a lot of hope. Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to culturally, I think, <sighs> I, I honestly think, and I hope, maybe this is me being slightly idealistic, but I think this is the beginning of a new moment for Ukraine, for the future, for all of the creativity that's been so suppressed and so compromised for so long and has been so appropriated, you know, and taken by 
Russia in particular, I think this is now the time where the future lies within my generations, Ukrainians, and the next kind of the younger generations of Ukrainians that are kind of coming up because we are all kind of at the front now of the front of the queue saying, right, now here's who we are. Here's what you need to pay attention to. Here's how you can help, even if you can't donate. And that's okay. The way you can still help is by just amplifying and listening and learning. People are starting to learn Ukrainian on Duolingo. They had no idea up until now. And I heard this my whole life because Ukrainian is my first language. Oh, it's Russian, basically. No, no, it's not. It's not. Um, you know, and people are now realizing the difference, the way the language sounds, the way. And so all of that is hugely empowering and uplifting and positive. And I really think that now is the time. It maybe it just was never right for whatever reason why Ukraine wasn't, you know, in in like I said, in the front of the queue. But now I think all the creators are right at the front of the class. So what kind of uh, sort of artistic disciplines do you think? I mean, they're all pushing, obviously, but yeah. which ones are the most important in terms of keeping the Ukrainian identity front of mind in the West? We've got writers, musicians, dancers, um, artists. You know, are they all working equally hard? Or do you think a particular medium is more effective at projecting you know, Ukrainian identity in the West? That's such a good question. And I've actually, I <laughs> I work on a podcast um, actually with uh, my friends, Maxim Eristavi and uh, Valeria Voschewska and we do Ukrainian spaces and we talk about this stuff a lot. And I, I, if, 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 if in my opinion, I think the most important is decolonizing our history and that takes authors, writers, journalists, activists who write a lot about how so many things in our history that everybody thought, you know, was Russian, that was Russian history, wasn't, it's Ukrainian. So I think that's the first step. You know, the first phase is writing, 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 like everybody using their words to tell our story. You know, that's the most important thing, I think. But I wouldn't say next because all of this runs in parallel, but I think the next would be art, painting, crafts, fashion. Because when people get tired of words, they want to see stuff. They want visual. They want to, in, you know, because that sometimes is more moving than a bunch of words on a page. You know, you could see a, a an old painting by a Ukrainian artist. You know, there's a, oh my gosh, there's an amazing account called Ukrainian Art History on Twitter. It's so just, it shares the most amazing art from all of these. I Some of them I'd never heard of, these Ukrainian artists. Um, but you could look at a painting from 1920 and go, that is is going to bring me to tears. And I understand more of Ukraine than I ever did before. So I think art, definitely painting creation when it comes to kind of um, making things. And um, so illustration and stuff that would come next. And then music, 
art in some way is more accessible than music, isn't it? Because, of course, lyrics, yeah. uh, especially if they're not in English, it's quite difficult to, uh, to sort of penetrate that. Yeah, and it, that's a good point. And you could say, oh my gosh, that story, that uh, song is really beautiful and haunting, but is it going to affect you the way you can look at a piece of art and make your own personal connection to it? I don't know, maybe not, you know? So I definitely think, yeah, I definitely think words first, then art, then music, and then dance. Um, but art in this, in the broad sense, when I mean art, so fashion, painting, you know, visual, absolutely. You need, you need that. I mean, uh, you know, Instagram does a lot of reels now because that's their format that the algorithm really likes. And some of the reels, I mean, people just put together photographs of landscapes in Ukraine and it's just extraordinary. I mean, it's I even see parts where I'm like, oh, I had no idea we had zebras. And so, yeah, it's absolutely stunning. And in terms of the diaspora, there are certainly in the UK, there are a lot of Ukrainians who I don't know how they keep going, but they're extraordinarily active doing sort of three or four events a week, um, seminars, podcasts, presentations. Um, how important is it? I mean, not only for that diaspora to, to do this activity, I imagine it also helps with their their mental health because it, you know, it helps in feeling that you're playing your part, even though, you know, you can't be on the front or you're not having the privation of no electricity and so on. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's our it's our kind of way of dealing with survivor's guilt, I guess, because all we can do is check on family if they have a signal. Otherwise, what are you know what are we doing here we can't just we cannot just sit around and watch the news you know i when the, when february happened i think a week later i said to my husband that's right i'm getting on a plane i'm going to see family i'm going to stay with them and i'm going to volunteer i will figure out a way i'm just going to go he said well <laughs> it was hard to reconcile that because you know, this is where my family's from. This is, I mean, it was just so upsetting. I felt really helpless. But as soon as I started uh, finding a community on social media and using my work to connect with people, with Ukrainians and journalists and activists and authors and things, I realized that that was really important, not just fulfilling, but it was really important because suddenly I have a platform, not for me, but for everything that I want to amplify right now about Ukraine and how people can help and where people can donate and, and, you know, which authors to read and all of these things I can do really easily. Thank God for social media. And, you know, in a way, I mean, this is the, didn't they say somewhere that this is the most recorded war in modern history i mean it's terrible because and the translations that i've been doing with frontline have just been insane and upsetting and horrifying but that's what we do that's our war effort that's how we can get involved and it does ease a little bit of our guilt for not being there and not even pacifists not wanting to normally strap a gun to themselves, we would happily do that if we were in Ukraine, saying like we want to defend our families and our land. And so, yeah, 
I mean, out here, like we're just trying to claw as much information as possible to share around the world. And that's the poignant part, isn't it? That must be the bit that's so difficult to deal with because there are writers, poets, musicians, historians. Everyday you see people, not necessarily in the news, but posting on Facebook and so on, that one of their acquaintances or someone they admire um, has been killed. The Ukrainian elite from every sphere of life are fighting. That is not necessarily the case with Russians, are they? You know, their cultural elite is not going to the front lines. Um, they're either fleeing the country or they're already in Europe or yeah. they're finding a way not to be mobilized. Yeah, they're, they're, <laughs> uh, yeah. It's funny because, you know, people think that sanctions might not work, but I actually think that if you remove, you know, the, the reason why it's funny to me that like the the Russian the Russian elite would never dare like volunteer for the front line because they're too worried about trying to reach their house somewhere on you know the coast of France and sending their child to a very expensive boarding school you know and that's where i realize that sanctions might work or they should work if you cut off that aspiration for them because people like that you know that have no desire to defend their country they have no they just it's me myself and i you know because the the entire country has conditioned people over generations to feel like that it's always the the haves the handful of haves and the rest of the have-nots but hey you know the people are the ones that are supposed to be all equal. Yeah, they'll keep them equal without anything, you know? And of course, even like just normal everyday Russians are not going to volunteer. Why? Because they don't care. They are not built to care about where they live. They just want to make sure that they have money in their pocket. They don't care about the country that they live in. It's funny, when my parents, when my parents, went uh they visited family and my uh my dad was walking around with cousins and that was because they visited in the 70s and it was under soviet rule obviously and my dad and his cousin were walking around and my dad looks over and he sees this like a few buildings that are just falling apart there's a toilet outside there's you know and but it's still in use somehow. And my dad looks at his cousin. And he's like, "Do you like? How can you live like that?" And he said, "It's not my problem." The cousin was like, "It's, <laughs> it's not my problem because no one else cares. Like no one cares about their country, you know. Whereas Ukrainians are so every single." inch of that country ukrainians are proud of they will defend it to the teeth they will spend their last moments living the way they want to live freely in their country even if they know a missile is going to drop on their head in five minutes they're not going to run away they're going to say well, i'm just going to have a cup of tea and be grateful that i'm still sitting on my piece of land and and that talks to a, 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 a you know, I, I couldn't agree more there i'm having seen how uh, you know the the countryside is 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 littered and despoiled when when I was traveling through Russia and and 
how these sort of huge hulking Soviet factories sometimes march on for miles and miles by the roadside or the railway tracks. You know, it's the utter degradation of the lived environment, which uh, people either don't care about or feel they have no control about. But I think it talked to something deeper, doesn't it? And that is Russians seem to, again, this is a, a big generalization, but Russians seem to have more deference for power while at the same time having this duality in their minds that knowing that those sources of power don't give a damn about them, will not do anything to protect them. And if they can, we'll, we'll use them as resources. They're, you know, the population is expendable. It seems to me Ukrainians have a different attitude to authority, a different attitude oh, yeah. to power. Yeah. And, and you know what's interesting? I like that you said that about the duality of what Russians, how they live and how they regard the, the people in power. Because they only like the people in power because the people in power tell them what to do. It's a very, um, it's almost like Stockholm Syndrome, you know? <clears throat> they find comfort in the fact that there is a person, it doesn't matter how rich they are, but that person tells them what to do. They are in charge. So they're like, well, I don't really have to think much. And, you know, I'm not going to earn more money than my neighbor. So why am I stressing out? I might as well just sit around and drink. You know, the, there's a, they, they like that because that's all they're used to. And I think freedom, now this is maybe me reaching here, but I think for the Russian brain, freedom and independence and the ability to create is wildly frightening. You know, it's an absurd notion and it, it just, it makes them angry because they've never been allowed to do that and they've gotten used to that. So why would somebody want to do that? It's decadent. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't want to do that. You should want people to tell you what to do. Whereas Ukrainians, I don't know. They, I mean, <laughs> I think we've just always been the kind of people that will hold people accountable. You know, when... When the war started and well, not just when it started, but a, a few months in, I got messages from my friends after seeing so much on the media about how Ukrainians are and the sense of humor and also the scrappiness and how stubborn they were and how they were out on the street pushing tanks with their bare hands. And my friends would go, that explains you in so like in, in such a better way now, now that I've known you for so long, we thought that you were like this because it was you. Oh, but no, it's all Ukrainians, basically. Sheer stubbornness and uh, <laughs> willfulness. Yeah. Right. But that's but because why live a life where you're towering? to somebody just because they have money and power. That's a terrible way to live. I mean, some yeah. of the people watching this might think that that is a horrific generalization. But, you know, I can say that having spoken to family there um, and having watched a lot of Vox Pops, you do get a lot, especially in the older generation uh, of Russians who will say things like, why are those Ukrainians always causing trouble? Why can't they just shut up and live like us? Why can't they just accept the rules, bow down, get on with it? There does seem to be a an incomprehension of why you would want to 
take all the risks and responsibility of not having a, you know, a gasudar or a master to tell yeah. you what to do. You know, that could also be a cultural thing. I, when I lived in England for 12 years, I not only was I the American that stood out in a very kind of a small English village, but I was also Ukrainian. So that on top of each other is a bit like, you know, everybody said, why is she always so like, why does she walk around like she's better than everybody? Or why does she always, you know, she's always talking and opinionated, but that's just, I don't know. That was always in who I was. And my Ukrainian friends have always been like that for the most part. My mother, nobody wants to ever talk to her because she will tell it like it is. She will send a meal back if it's not cooked the way she asked for it to be cooked, it's very, you know, and we don't do it to be, Ukrainians don't do it to be annoying or confrontational or mean. We are very generous, big hearted people. We will give you the shirt off our backs. But if you try and mess with us, it, it just pisses us off. Like it's a waste of time. And we're going to tell you how we feel about it. You know, when um, uh, Yanukovych did not want to sign the deal for Ukraine to go into the EU and stalled it. I mean, you saw what happened. It was the orange revolution. Everybody went mental, you know, and good. That's the way politicians should be. They should be slightly afraid of the people they govern, you know? And I think, whereas, and I love the UK, it is my second home and I'm a British citizen, but culturally, British people do not like tall poppies. So I think a lot of people did not understand my Ukrainian-ness who didn't know me because it was like, she's a little bit, she needs to be a little bit, you know, just calm down a bit. It's okay. <laughs> no need to, no need to broadcast all the time. <laughs> there can so, be a bit of, let's say, deference to authority here. Yes, I mean, yes. sometimes people will certainly rebel, but there, there does seem to be a certain... Uh, aspect of the culture of, of sort of rule taking and you know buckling yeah. down and, and not complaining and that's perfectly and you know what that's perfectly okay like i'm not judging everybody's comfortable living in a country that they feel works for them that's great it creates a lot of problems uh, it, it, i've i've seen um yeah, <laughs> yeah how's that going um yeah, not great not since 2016 <laughs> sorry if i upset some of my viewers there but it's not going great it's it's yeah it's well it's interesting um you know but I, I do think that we have just never, Ukrainians are just, have never been like that. I, I, you know, and we do, we do get ourselves into trouble, I think. But, you know, now I think we're just taking this fully with both hands, this opportunity and saying, that's it. I think we've just had enough. We've had enough. You know, we're changing the conversation now for people to listen to us, you know. They've had decades of... Uh... I say purposeful repression of Ukrainian history and voices, and uh, it is definitely your time. I've got two more questions because I know it's uh, it's probably not so late for you, but it's uh, getting on a bit here. I, I think say. these two questions are a good place to you know, and they're really uh, you know they're really in in contrast. I mean, one is extremely negative, so I'd like to talk a little bit about the cultural losses, the destruction, the looting, obviously of the physical. Uh, places like museums, but also 
the loss of, of individuals, extremely talented individuals. But then the question that I want to end on, if we can cover that, the one I want to end on is when the war ends, and I think a Ukrainian victory is inevitable, will that give a new dynamic spur to, you know, to this new Ukrainian identity, this sort of forceful identity that isn't going to agree to be silenced? But also, you're going to have so many millions of people with extraordinary experiences, whether it be trauma, grief, but also exiles, siege. You're going to be having millions of people with incredible uh, experiences coming to terms with it. So we have this incredible cultural loss. On the other hand, how do you feel about emerging culture from this whole uh, terrible war? I think any war will have its kind of devastation, but culturally, you know, there is, you know, there is someone trying to erase a people and a culture. And it's there. Unfortunately, that's always going to happen in uh, such a war. And I'm not going to call it a conflict. I know lots of media agencies call it a conflict, but it's definitely a war. And it's a war on Ukrainian not just the people in the land, but on the heritage and the culture that we've tried to protect for so long. And which is why there have been so many museums destroyed and looted, churches that have been desecrated, um, you know, composers that have been shot and killed, not just, uh, you know, in since the 1930s and 40s, but just in this war alone. I mean, it's very clear that a country like Russia wants to erase every speck of what Ukrainian culture is. And I think that's the insidious, terrible thing that we are all realizing. It's not just a land war. It is really just scraping off, scraping Ukraine off the map is what they're trying to do, you know, and the most amazing thing I've seen, even since the beginning, I remember Ilya Kaminsky, the poet, um, and I think he's just extraordinary. He wrote Deaf Republic. He's uh, he's just so wonderful and such a great human being. And he shared a picture, and I don't know if he he took it or somebody else did, but there was a, a was a window that um, was trying to protect. Uh, a window is being protected from from being shattered by by artillery. And they had books lining uh, the windows. And the picture was so poignant because I thought that's what Ukrainians are doing. It's like they're using their culture to stop the tanks, using their books to stop tanks. And I think that is something that has kind of, is the thread that's taken me through for the last nine months is that you see the things that I have seen, which are really terrifying, are eclipsed by the videos that I see of people playing violin in the bomb shelters. Uh, soldiers, after liberating Kherson, uh, um, were singing Shen of Metal Ukraina, the national anthem. They were, you know, uh, I know people have criticized this, but Banksy <laughs> went over to Ukraine and started spray painting his art on some of the rubble. And I know people are saying, oh, that's just war tourism. He's trying to get, you know, Western media is trying to make this like a cute souvenir. 
I personally saw it as him saying, you can still create, you can still create art, no matter how devastated you are. And I, and that's ultimately deep down who Ukrainians are. We will continue creating. And the new stories that are going to come out of this are going to be just as extraordinary and just as beautiful. Yes, it's sad because we have the trauma of losing so much of what we've tried to protect. But at the same time, this new, these new painful stories are going to be pretty extraordinary, you know? And Yes, so many people, even in the in in the diaspora, are going to be carrying so much trauma after all of this has been just kind of being tucked away, tucked away for the last nine months and even longer. Who knows how this is going to go? But um, these moments are for new opportunities, new creation, new stories, new art. There's <clears throat> excuse me. There's amazing art coming out now by. Um, Olya Haidamaka and Olga Koftun and all of these beautiful Ukrainian painters who are painting these scenes that are like slightly sad and painful, but at the same time, they are so beautiful and so magical. So beauty will come out of it somehow. And I think that's what humans do in cases of trauma. What do we do? We turn to art and music and and literature. We turn to creative pursuits. We don't turn to accounting and, you know, <laughs> you know, the, the human spirit needs art. And that's, you know, even in war, it's not a luxury, it's a necessity, you know. And one of my speakers said something similar, which was that, you know, independence in some ways came too easily uh, in 1991. Uh, Obviously, a price has been paid through the various revolutions, yeah. but it's only now, she said, that she appreciates the price of that freedom. And that could also be transferred to culture. Um, you know, that that preservation of culture, that uh, sanctity of it, um, but also that innovative process you talked about, it becomes more precious because in the last year, it's never been threatened uh, with extinction in quite the same way. Yeah. No, and that's such a, I'm, I'm so glad that that person said that because it's kind of true. I mean, even after 1991, nothing, I mean, it wasn't really 100%. I mean, people who live there will probably have a different opinion, but I remember when my parents and I saw that, we celebrate Independence Day, obviously every year, but even my parents were a bit, mm, really? Is there really no shadow there? because there always was and it still felt like it this is the the very first time that i think everybody is kind of thinking what's going to happen now this is like a really revolutionary moment inside a a, a ukrainian's spirit you know it's there's a bigger fire there's a bigger explosion happening you know, for us going, we're almost even more fearless than we normally would be. You know, there are, I, I was doing a translation uh, of a man who, uh, there were four men who were taken uh, captive and one of the one survivor out of four of them uh, was being interviewed. And he said, <clears throat> uh, to, the Russians came in and said, right, 
first two who are going to, we're going to take you out and shoot you. Who's going to volunteer. And these two older men who were there just kind of raised their hands and be like, that's fine. But very easily did that. And I remember saying to my father, yuck, how, how, why would they do that? I would just try and like stay, stay quiet and hope I would survive. And my, my father's like, what is the point? You're in captivity. Russians are probably going to beat you and kill you anyway. You might as well go with pride and say, you know what? And while I'm going to go, I'm going to tell you to F off, you know, like what he, and he said, like, he would do the same at that point. You have nothing to lose. You're going to go anyway. You might as well. And that's, that's the thing. It's like, people are more, more adamant than ever to like say how they feel because there's nothing to lose at this point. There's everything to gain because they're standing on their own ground right now. They are still a free country. And these people are coming in and telling them, uh, no, you know. And that's like Zelensky's speech. I think probably the most powerful for me, at least, of the speeches he's made was listing out all the things like, you know, electricity, food, warmth, and then just saying, you know, we'll put up with all these things as long as, you know. Without you. Without you. Yeah. As long as we're not Russian, as long as we remain to the end, you know, ourselves. Yeah. And that, and that is why, you know, suddenly politics and humanity are like coexisting really nicely. When probably in the past, in with lots of world leaders, people didn't feel like it was. People didn't feel like their leaders were human. This is a guy who's talking like a father and a husband and a citizen saying, because you know exactly that if he wasn't president, he'd be sat in his house with his wife or in a bomb shelter going, I don't care if I have nothing, I'd rather have no Russians. And that's fine. You know, ex you know that he would be that way. And I find that hugely inspiring. And I think that's why people are saying like, that's so compelling. And that energy is leading everybody else. And all, it, all Ukrainians are looking at him for that influx of energy. Had it been somebody else, maybe we wouldn't be as angry or, I mean, we would be angry, but maybe we wouldn't be so motivated in this way, in this visceral way. And that's a lot of it has to do with Zelensky. Yeah. And he's not making empty promises. I know people were, a lot of people were disappointed in the civic years when he came in. Um, obviously, there was still a war going on, but on a, on a uh, you know, fraction of the scale it is now. But there's something Churchillian, isn't it, in the way that he's not making empty promises. He's actually turning around and telling everyone, this is not going to be easy. This is, I'm not giving you any false hope here. Yeah, it's and that's brilliant. It's so wonderful to hear somebody in power say that. I said the other day, what was it? I said, I wish there was any president or any world leader. This was before, I think maybe last year. I was like, I wish somebody would just in, in a position of power would say, you know what? This sucks. Like, I get it. I'm, I'm a human being too. Just because I have this really powerful position doesn't mean I don't get it. I do. I understand. Let's try and work on it together. Nobody has done that really because they feel like, I think there's a fear that people will collapse if they show their humanity. You know, the, the people the, like a country will just descend into riots if they see that their leader is a human, which is silly. We see it as a perfect example now in a war. It's terrifying. And he's standing there going, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I don't sleep either. 
like <laughs> well, I'm gonna try my best and meeting real people I mean nothing contrasts more with seeing Zelensky meet families uh the bereaved the troops going to the front line and contrast that with um you know he who I don't want to name you know, uh, even pronounce the name, sitting at these endless long tables, sitting with fake mothers of yeah. fake sons who yeah. may not even be at the front. Um, it doesn't get more stark than that, does it? No, it's it's when leaders, when you assume that a leader would not even know what a, a gallon of milk costs, that's, I think that's a problem. You know, you are a lead, a world leader is a public servant you know, and should be seen as such and, and should behave as such. And, you know, people, when people vote that person in, they should hold that person accountable. And that person in power should hold himself or herself accountable. And Zelensky so far is doing just that. I'm not saying he's perfect. Nobody's a saint. He's going to make mistakes just like the rest of us. But at least he's saying, I get it. I'm I'm here with you. And I'm just going to do my best and let's see how we can do this together, you know. Well, I want to thank you for this, you know, really thrilling conversation. I think everyone's been impressed by the extraordinary resilience of Ukrainians and what the diaspora is doing to just keep that you know, awareness of Ukraine uh, at boiling point um, is absolutely critical to to the war effort and keeping the West engaged with the support that's required. Um, yeah, all I need to say here is thank you and uh, Slava Ukraine. Hello, I am Slava. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure.